0: take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking today at Revelation chapter 11. I hope each of you had a good, wonderful Christmas and a good beginning to the new year. Uh, The Harper family was uh, delighted to be able to get back to Indiana for a short period of time to be with family, and we were glad to be able to come back home here as well. And I've been looking forward to getting back into Revelation And boy, oh boy, are we jumping into the deep end uh, today as we jump into chapter 11 where we left off uh, five or six weeks ago. I invite you to listen as I read uh, Revelation chapter 11, uh, the entire chapter from verse 1 down through verse 19. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Let's pray together. Father, we pray often that you would be with us as we read your word and as we look into understanding it because we need your understanding. We need to have wisdom from you. And perhaps we feel that especially today as we consider such a complicated and confusing passage, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see wonderful things, helpful things, encouraging things from this portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, even as Elder Nyman was praying, we were reminded that the last couple of weeks have been fairly difficult for a number of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. December the 26th the Islamic State terrorist faction out of West Africa executed 11 Christians who were aid workers in Nigeria. One was shot and then 10 were beheaded. It's been reported that it was done in retaliation for killings of ISIS leaders that had taken place earlier in the year. Over a 1,000 Christians were killed in Nigeria in 2019, about 2400 in 2018 all for their faith in Christ December the 30th China's judicial court sentenced Pastor Wang Yi of the early reign covenant church to nine years in prison giving him heavy fines to pay and seizing his personal assets because he was preaching the gospel in China and this after being held in secret in a secret location for the past year. In some ways these very real scenarios that have been playing out in our world are seem very distant from us, don't they? Uh, we don't have this kind of an experience in our everyday life for now. But I want you to just for a moment to imagine what it would be like to live in a place like that as a Christian believer. Can you have even just a little bit of the sense of how uh, how much anxiety it would produce just to go out into the street not knowing if you're going to come back home or not going to work and perhaps being taken into custody simply because you name the name of christ as your lord and savior because you talk to others about the gospel can you appreciate the amount of fear that that might produce the uh, the, the lack of, of the sense of security. The book of Revelation was written for exactly those kinds of people dealing with those kinds of trials and tribulations in this world. The book of Revelation was written to fill all of God's people with a sense of comfort and hope and encouragement and strength that they might persevere in the Christian life either until Jesus comes back or until he brings them to be with him in heaven. We've just come through what's often referred to as the season of Advent. It's a season of waiting, as we talked about during the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. It's it's a waiting for the arrival of King Jesus and his second coming or his second Advent. But there is a sense in which the entire year is a year of Advent for God's people. Because we are always meant to be thinking intentionally and expectantly, waiting for the coming of the Lord Himself. And Revelation is meant to help us as we wait. To fill us with hope and strength as we wait that we might be faithful in the midst of whatever we are called to go through in this life. Now it's been a little while since we've been looking at Revelation, probably about five or six weeks. And so let me give you just a quick recap of not everything that we've talked about so far, but just kind of the big picture things that we've discussed. The overall message of the book of Revelation is that God is in control of history and he wins. And the book of Revelation, in many ways, can be summed up in that simple little statement. It's meant to encourage and fill our, uh, our, God's people with hope and strength. Now, we've talked about how the book of Revelation is, is meant to be read as a children's storybook, not so much thought of as like a uh, massive uh, jigsaw puzzle that we have to try to figure out how to put all the pieces together. There are many different views of interpretation. Uh, For example, there's the futurist view that basically views all of Revelation, all the prophecies, all of those things as, as extremely literal and almost all of them taking place in the future, the very time when Jesus returns. There is the preterist view, which basically views almost everything that Revelation talks about as happening in the past, uh, most often in the the first century uh, leading up to the conquering of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. There's the uh, historist idea, which, or, or viewpoint, which basically says that Revelation uh, describes various things that have taken place and are taking place in history over the course of uh, the first century until Jesus returns. And there's the idealist view, which basically says that it's not meant to give us a a sense of history, but to give us ideas, ideas that are big picture ideas that are true for God's people throughout the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. I told you in the first couple of sermons that my personal perspective on that is a little bit of each of those positions. I call it the eclectic view. Uh, taking bits and pieces from each of those and seeing how God's word is unfolding for us. Let's remember some basic principles that we're following as we interpret this. Jesus, or excuse me, John uses in his writing of Revelation many symbols and metaphors in his book uh, in order to communicate the truth that God wants his people to know. And it's meant in many places to be read symbolically. In fact, John even says that in verse 8 of our chapter today. That symbolically, he says, the cities were representing uh, the cities of evil that he mentioned there. We've talked about the fact that uh, Revelation is really uh, a book that has seven different cycles or snapshots of history from Jesus' first coming until his second coming. And the entire book takes us through that same time period, seven different times, looking at that same time period from different vantage points. John was very knowledgeable of the scriptures of the Old Testament and he uses many images from the Old Testament throughout the book, including our chapter that we're looking at today. It was a letter that was written to the churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century to encourage and to help them. But it was also intended to be used by God's people throughout the ages to help us as we wait until Jesus returns. Just remember real quickly the immediate context of where we are in Revelation chapter 11. Back at the middle of chapter 8... We began this vision of the seven trumpets being blown by the seven angels. Each trumpet being blown gave us another picture of God's judgment coming on the earth uh, at various times between the first and the second coming of Jesus. From verse 6 of chapter 8 all the way through the end of chapter 9, we read about the first six trumpets. And then in chapter 10 all the way through the middle part of chapter 11, John takes an intermission. There's a little bit of a break from those trumpets being blown between the sixth and seventh trumpet to give us the story of the angel and the little scroll and the two witnesses that we'll talk about today. And then at the end of chapter 11, our passage today, we hear about the seventh trumpet being blown. That's that's where we are in Revelation. That's what we're reading about today. And again, the entirety of the book is meant to help us to live between Jesus's first and second coming, to help God's people to be prepared for what to expect in this life and to strengthen us and encourage us that we might persevere to the end. So today I want us to look at two things in particular, what John sees about the church, God's people suffering, and what he sees about the church being secure. So let's look at those two things and then consider what difference it makes for us. So first of all, the picture that we get of the church suffering. We have to talk about these two witnesses as we read in verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, God says through John. Now who are these two witnesses? In the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament, Christians are referred to as witnesses. And just think of one place in particular, Acts chapter 1. Jesus speaking to his disciples and through them to all of his people that will be his disciples in the years to come. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Throughout the New Testament, throughout Revelation in particular, witnesses are used to refer to God's people, the church. And why are there two of them? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7... We're told that in a court of law where you were making a case of something when you're trying to prove something to be true, it took two witnesses in order to corroborate and validate uh, that something was actually the case and something was true. So here we have this picture of these two witnesses as a picture of us as God's people. We are the witnesses. Now, what are they doing? We see that in verses 3 through 6. We see, first of all, in verse 3, that they are given authority by God himself to go out and to prophesy for 1,260 days. God's people, the church, are called to be witnesses and he sends them out with his authority to declare, to proclaim something. And we get a sense of what they are proclaiming from a couple different places here in verses 3 through 6. At the end of verse 3, we're told that God's witnesses go out clothed in sackcloth. That is uh, an image, that is a picture that is often used in the scriptures of judgment and repentance. God's people, the church, are to go out with his authority preaching the gospel of repentance. For people to repent and to turn to the Lord. But we see also what they're doing from verses 4 through 6. And it's very interesting. John weaves in, in those three verses, three different references to the Old Testament. You have to look carefully, but they're all there. The first one's in verse 4, where he talks about the olive uh, trees and the lampstands, the two and the two. Uh, He's uh, referencing, he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 4. And in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah talks about King Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua who led the people back from exile in Babylon. And he refers to them as the two olive trees and the lampstands. It's a picture of using Christ's royal authority. The royal authority of King Jesus and the priestly testimony of the high priest, Jesus Christ himself, to lead his people in truth and grace. And then in verses five and six, he uses another picture of another place in the Old Testament. He uses two images from the life of Elijah in verse five. He talks about second Kings one where God set down fire from heaven to consume soldiers who sought to do harm to Elijah. And in verse 6, he alludes to the time in Elijah's ministry when no rain fell on Israel for three years. So here he's describing, using Elijah, he's describing God's people being sent out with power and authority of God to fulfill God's mission. And then at the end of verse 6, there's an allusion to Moses and the plagues that Moses was given to enable God's people to leave Israel. Egypt, one who led God's people out of bondage by means of God's powerful miracles. So he's describing how God is at work defending his people and leading them and guiding them and restraining evil around them. So what are these two witnesses doing here in Revelation chapter 11? They are being sent out as God's witnesses to proclaim truth and grace. With the power and the authority of God himself. And God is at work doing miraculous things of having people come to faith in Christ through them. That's who they are and that's what they're doing. And how long were they doing it? Notice we see in verse verse 3, they will prophesy for 1,260 days. And earlier in verse 2, we see that unbelievers will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's the same length of time. 42 months, 1,260 days, equals three and a half years. Those numbers are used frequently throughout the Bible. I'm not going to take time to walk you through all the different places that 42 months and 1260 days and three and a half years show up. But suffice it to say that that length of time, three and a half years, is symbolic because it's half of seven, which we've talked about often in Revelation, which is the number of completion and perfection. So the point that... John is getting here is that these witnesses, God's people being sent out to testify to truth and grace are doing it for a definite period of time that will come to an end. And lastly, as we think about this church, God's people, God's witnesses going out, notice the response that they have as they go out to proclaim the truth of God. The end of verse 2, we read that the witnesses are proclaiming truth and grace and experiencing persecution and opposition from the world. And in particular, in verses 7 through 10, we see that they experience great difficulty and suffering. John introduces the beast. We're going to see more and learn more about the beast as we come to chapter 13. But what we notice here is that this beast is someone who is against God. Someone who is permitted to wage war on the church and to kill the two witnesses. And we see in verses 8 through 10 that there is great contempt shown for the witnesses after they are killed. In the ancient culture, when a body was not allowed to be buried, that was a sign of contempt. And it goes even further here as we see uh, the world uh, having a celebration, having a party over the dead bodies of these witnesses. It's a picture of the world rejoicing over the seeming defeat of the church. So put all of this together. And what do we see? We see a picture of God's people, the church, enduring suffering in this world, called to be proclaimers of God's truth and the gospel of grace. And as the church proclaims these things to the world... There's a promise here that that the church will experience real, intense suffering and persecution and opposition. But that it will be limited. That it will be for a definite period of time. Now, that's not very encouraging. It's it's kind of a grim picture, isn't it? We see that what God is promising to his people is that if we are Christians, we are going to suffer we are going to face opposition in this world but what I want you to see is that John not only gets a vision of the church suffering but of the church that is secure look again back in verses 1 and 2 John was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there In John's vision, he's given a measuring stick of some length and he's told to go out and to measure the temple of God. There are lots of... Questions and interpretations about what this temple represents. Those who uh, come much uh, from the futurist viewpoint, the very literal disp- uh, d- d- viewpoint of many dispensational brothers and sisters in Christ, interpret this as a literal temple that it, someday in the future will be constructed by some geopolitical leader. Most likely in the Middle East and particularly in Jerusalem. And I can remember even back in the late 1980s and the early 1990s as Desert Storm was raging that we heard rumors about Saddam Hussein starting to construct a temple somewhere in the Middle East. And there was lots of concern that maybe he was going to be helping to fulfill Revelation chapter 11. But I don't think that that's necessarily a good or helpful interpretation. It doesn't reflect the immediate context or the overarching context of Revelation and all of Scripture. What is this temple? Throughout the New Testament, the temple is referred to not as a physical building, but as people, specifically God's people. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said I will make my dwelling among you and walk among you. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Peter also had this understanding in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says you yourselves speaking to God's people. Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. A temple To be a holy priesthood. One of the main purposes of the Old Testament temple was to give us a picture to foreshadow the reality of God dwelling with his people because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So back to chapter 11 in Revelation, the temple is here a picture of God's people. And notice they are measured. This picture of God taking a full inventory of his people, counting them, they are known, they are secured. We are, as Peter says, living stones that God is taking each one of us and building us into his holy temple where he dwells within us. This is a picture of the security of God's people in the midst of suffering and opposition and persecution and all that we face in this life. If you are one of God's people, you are the temple of God and you have been known. You have been counted. You have been measured. You have the security of the all-powerful, authoritative Lord God Almighty. As he watches over you with his sovereign and steadfast grace. This is a picture of the church being secure, not only because God's people are measured, but also because God's people are rescued. We read that after the two witnesses proclaimed the truth and their time of proclaiming the truth to the world was over, the beast rose up and kills them. And the world celebrates the seeming death. Of these witnesses. Their bodies are shown contempt. They are ridiculed by the unbelieving world. But then we read in verses 11 and following. That after a definite limited amount of time. Three and a half days. The breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up. God resurrects the witnesses. And then calls them up to heaven in verse 12. And they ascend to heaven in the presence of their enemies. It's a reminder that there have always been times in the history of the world when it looks like the church, God's people, have been defeated and destroyed. But the victories over, of the world over the church are temporary and they are limited. The gates of hell will not prevail. In the end, the church, God's people, are rescued, redeemed, resurrected, and eventually, one day, will be finally called to heaven. To be with their Lord forever. This is a picture of the church being secured. Not only because God's people are measured and rescued. But also because of the very clear declaration that our Savior Jesus Christ is reigning. Look again at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet is blown, signifying the final end of time and the arrival of King Jesus and His second advent. And when that happens, the kingdom of the world... That which at one point, and even today, is in opposition to the Lord God Almighty, becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. King Jesus is reigning now. Look at what we read in verses 16 and following. And the, 20 elders, the 24 elders fell, uh, who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Jesus Christ is reigning at this very moment. And one day, when the final trumpet blows on that last day, His reign will be complete and total and forever. And so God's people are secure. If Jesus is your Savior, if He is your Lord, your Lord and Savior is reigning This is a picture of the church being secured, not only because God's people are measured and rescued and because Christ is reigning, but the last thing I want you to see from the text is in verse 19. It is that the covenant of grace, of God's promise, has been fulfilled. The last thing that John sees is in verse 19. The temple of heaven is opened. And what does John see? The Ark of the Covenant. That is an important and a sacred object in the Old Testament. It was a small box that was ornately decorated. And it was used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize the presence of God with his people. In it were the Ten Commandments as they were carted around the various places that the Israelites were going. Eventually, it landed its place in the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple in the Holy of Holies, where the presence, the holiness, and the righteousness of the Lord was. And it had a lid that perfectly covered the Ten Commandments, the law. And the priest, on a regular basis, would come in and sprinkle blood on that lid to foreshadow Jesus Christ's blood covering over the sins and the breaking of the law of God. Do you see the significance of John seeing the Ark of the Covenant here at the very end of time? It's a reminder that God's covenant of grace, God's promise of redemption that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve has come to its fulfillment. Now, at the end of time, God is still faithful to his promise and his covenant of grace. He has fulfilled what he said he would do. And now God's people are secure through the atoning life, death, resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. This is a picture of God's people, the church being secure, even in the midst of living a life of suffering and persecution. So what do we do with all of this? Let me finish by giving you three things to think about as you're leaving today. The first is a question. Are you living inside or outside of the temple? Did you notice back in verses 1 and 2, John is given this measuring stick and he's told to go measure the temple. And we've talked about how the temple represents God's people. How God's people are measured. They are counted. They are known. But notice what John is told not to do. He's told not to go and to measure the outer courts. He said, leave those alone. Don't measure those. And it's this picture of the Old Testament temple in Tabernacle that had these outer courts where those that were not God's people weren't allowed to go in any further. They had to stay on the fringes. And there's a picture here. There's a picture of Whether we are inside or outside of the temple today, are you one of God's people? If you are, then you have been measured and you have been secured by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Or are you someone who's just a Christian in name only? Perhaps you're playing church, hanging around the house of the Lord but not really going into it and having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The time is coming when the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, will be blown. And at that point, it is too late to come into the house of the Lord. The time is now. The time is today. You know if you're here and you're just playing church, hanging around god's people not truly in a relationship with jesus and revelation 11 is clear and it is a direct call to put your hope and your trust and your faith in the lord today A second thing for us to reflect on as we leave today is the call that we have as God's witnesses to declare the truth and to expect persecution. If you're a Christian, then you are, according to Revelation 11, one of God's witnesses. And God calls his people to go out into the world and to proclaim both his truth and his grace, his law and his gospel, to do it through our words and in our actions, that we would tell the truth of God's word and that we would tell the truth of God's grace, and that we would live those things out in our lives. We are promised that it's not going to be easy or always comfortable. The life of a disciple of Jesus is a calling to suffer and to endure persecution and opposition from the world. In fact, Jesus said that to us before he went back up into heaven. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, trials, difficulties, opposition, persecution. The world will not like the proclamation of the truth of God's word. It will not like the call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It will not desire the call to embrace the gospel of God's grace. Even though life for Christians in this country has been relatively easy, that's not the case for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world even today. And it may not be our experience in the future. But this is a call to not let the suffering or the persecution that we may have to go through deter us from being proclaimers and witnesses of God's word and His grace of the gospel. Jesus went on to say in John 16, Not only in this world you will face tribulation, but He said, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Even as we recognize that we are called to be sent out as witnesses and to expect persecution, we also go with the sense that that is going to be limited. It may be intense, but it's going to be a definite period of time for the church. We are sent out with the power and the authority of the Lord God Almighty himself. It is he who will be at work in us and through us. And we have the promise of the reality that even then when we don't see it, even when it's very hard to see or understand, Jesus is right now he is about the business of accomplishing his purposes and he will not be defeated so as we go out to be his witnesses we go out expecting persecution perhaps even suffering in this life but we know that it's temporary and we know that we're secure and that's the third thing that I want you to reflect on as you're leaving today that you would find incredible comfort and rest and the security that is for God's people. This is a picture of God's people being secure, and it's meant to fill us with comfort and hope and a sense of rest. God has been and always will be faithful to His covenant promises. Think about this. You have been measured. You have been Counted, You have been known from before the foundation of the world. And God himself has promised that he will always be your God and that you will always be his people. God has promised that he will always dwell with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Listen to what. Paul said in helping us to understand the promises of God to us because of his covenant of grace. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified. nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I would just ask you to reflect, what is it in your mind that you think could separate you from the love of your Father in heaven? Because if you believe the Word of God, it says there is nothing. There is nothing, nothing that you will experience in this world that can separate you from the love of your Savior. He is faithful to His covenant promises. Let us find comfort and hope and strength in this truth. And so let us rest securely in this eternal truth of God's grace and mercy. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy for us to become distracted and to doubt and to wonder and to have things in our lives and our minds that cause us to think that your love for us would end, would stop. I pray that as we meditate on the reality, of your covenant promises for us in Christ and how you have fulfilled them and that even at the end of time that wonderful symbol of the Ark of the Covenant will be prominently displayed testifying to your faithful, steadfast love to us. In the meantime, Father, as we read your word and as we look at these things, would you encourage us and fill us with hope? Send us out, Father, with even a joy to go out and to be your witnesses, no matter what comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Read in the Gospel of Matthew that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord knows that living as one of his witnesses, one of his disciples, is challenging. uh, That we face difficulties uh, in this world living as his people. He knows that we need regular help. And so he's given us some tools to use, to help us, to encourage us, to support us, to strengthen us. We call them the means of grace. And one of those is the Lord's Supper, this table that we come to at the end of our service. It's a reminder to us this morning that as these elements come around to you and you see them, you smell them, you touch them, you taste them. As real as these elements are, that's how real the Lord's love is for his people. It's how real his steadfast faithfulness is to his covenant promises. He uses this as a means of helping us to grow spiritually in our knowledge, and our understanding, and our apprehension of God's grace to us. We believe that this table is for someone who is in a relationship with the Lord, who has made a public profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be here at Trinity or another church that believes that the gospel is by grace alone in Christ alone. that's not you this morning then we would ask you to allow the elements to pass you by uh, to not partake of the Lord's Supper but instead to use this time to ask the Lord to show himself to you to reveal his grace and mercy to you and to give you faith that you might put your trust and hope in Christ but if that is you this morning then eat and drink be reminded of what these elements point us to Christ's body and his blood given for us in fulfillment of the covenant of, uh, of grace And the promise that as we come in faith, even a weak faith, that the Holy Spirit will be at work strengthening that weak faith so that we can go out and to be God's witnesses this week ahead. So let's pause and let's thank Him for giving us this Lord's Supper. We do thank You, Father, for the Lord's Supper, this means of grace. We pray that You would use it for these very purposes that we've just mentioned. Help us to remember. But we also pray, Father, that You would fill us spiritually nourish us as the Holy Spirit would be at work. We come to you believing and we pray that you would help our unbelief. We pray that you would give us a a stronger faith that we would go out with not only the strength to be your witnesses, but even a joy to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after he had given thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples. As I, ministering his name, give it to you. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the trays with the bread come around, you can take your hymnals and turn to hymn number 691. 691. We'll remain seated and sing together hymn 691.